0: Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we'll be having a stab at history, writing the history of the last four years, perhaps the next four years, and what comes after that, particularly as regards the end or the start of the Trump era, what it means for the centre-right in America and indeed in Australia. Um, To help me with that, I have none other than my regular co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: Chris, welcome. Uh, Also joining me is Andrew Bushnell, Research Fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. G'day, Scott. Great to have you. Uh, Don't forget, Looking Forward is a podcast of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. Uh, Chris, I'll I'll ask you in a moment uh, to set up today's discussion about the post-election wrap-up Um, and, and of course, later in the show we'll have our usual Books and Culture segment. But I might take this opportunity also uh, to thank you, the listener, for being with us on the journey uh, for looking forward for the past 90-plus episodes over the last two years. It's been a a fabulous experience uh, for me and, I hope, uh, for Chris and the listeners uh, and all the wonderful special guests that we've had along the way. I'm saying this now because uh, next week will actually be our final episode uh, due to uh, the pressure of other work and the desire to do more specials as part of the amazing digital output of the Institute of Public Affairs, more, more interviews, more documentaries, more topical takes on what's going on. Uh, we will be uh, putting looking forward into abeyance, apart from the odd special from time to time. Uh, so again, thank you for your support. Uh, you can continue to track the work of the IPA via our website and our social media channels. And uh, there'll certainly be no shortage of terrific digital product in 2021 and beyond. Um, but after next week, that'll be it for uh, Looking Forward as a weekly podcast. Chris. <laughs> yes,
1: uh, that, that's right. It's been um, uh, an awesome pleasure. Um, I think we'll do some reflections on it next week. Um, but, you know, if I guess Donald Trump, uh, has lost the election. So what's the point of the podcast anymore, really? <laughs> why, why, why continue? How why could
0: continue? it possibly be as interesting as it's been over, over the past few years?
1: And there's a vaccine as well. So it just really... Can't talk my, about COVID either. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so unfortunately, Scott and I have run out of things to say. Uh, so we thought we'd wrap the
0: podcast. Up. Speak for yourself, Bert. <laughs> no, but but uh, yes, less facetiously, but uh, indeed. But we'll talk, right. we'll talk. so let's
1: let's talk let's talk about um, uh, this week, shall we? So um, we actually did a couple of wrap up episodes, or not a couple of wrap up, but we um, have had a number of episodes on the um, U.S. election. Um, obviously, we had one. It turns out, on the day of the or the night of the election, U.S. time. Um, with uh, Gideon Rosner and Morgan Begg. Um, I thought it would be, and we thought that would be interesting to, now that um, the election is wrapping up and maybe we'll talk about how wrapped up it is, but it would be interesting to talk about and important to talk about the um, legacy that Trump has had, not just on the Republican Party, because that's that's interesting, but it's also, you know, not Australia. But what is legacy he'd that administration has had on the free market movement in Australia and around the world. Um, One of the long run themes that we've had on this podcast has been the um, tension in the coalition or otherwise between libertarians, classical liberals, conservatives, and the new generation of national or nationalist conservatives, or however they um, like to be described. Um, now that it looks, <laughs> it looks like Donald Trump um, has lost the 2020 election and Joe Biden will be the president, I thought it'd be good to um, reflect on that legacy. Um, why don't we start, though, with the very practical questions. Now, I think that Donald Trump is doing himself an incredible disservice and certainly doing an incredible disservice to those who would um, support his political revolution by um, challenging the election at this stage. But Andrew, what I want to ask you as someone who's possibly more sympathetic to the Trump movement than I is over the last couple of weeks, how have you seen or reassessed or reconfirmed your view about the evolution of center-right politics in the U.S. and the world. How has the post-election, um, uh, how is the post-election um, uh, affected or not affected how you think about it?
2: The, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question because the last month has been, um, I think we could say, highly unusual. Um, in that <laughs> Just a tad. Um, Just, it's a bit odd. But what I would say is that. Um, now, you, in, any, in any situation like this, you're going to get a few people who try to take advantage of it to, to boost themselves, um, you know, colloquially called grifting. Um, and so there's been a few fanciful claims made uh, about, I think, what happened in the election. Um, and some people have tried to take advantage of that. Um, but I think overall, what what the way it should be viewed is that as Trump looks like he's moving to the exit and there's only one really outstanding court case now. Um, uh, he's setting himself up to be the leader of the opposition. Basically, he's saying, I'm not going anywhere. Um, if you believe the reports, I think it was in Axios. Um, he's even planning to have a counter rally on, the, on Inauguration Day, um, which should set the tone for the next four years. Uh, And I think his supporters will be with him because um, there's no concern here about uh, undermining the legitimacy of a Biden presidency or anything like that. All of those complaints are simply nonsense in the wake of what happened to Trump, Uh, in the way that Trump's presidency was deliberately destroyed um, from the outset by uh, people within his own administration, within the executive over which he was nominally the head um, within the Republican Party and, of course, the lies a bit told about him by the Democratic Party, uh, there's really no concern. I, 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 there's no reason for Trump not to be combative like this. And I think the question can be turned around. If uh, Trump, by some fluke, were able to overturn the election based on some legal means, uh, if the Supreme Court... ...somehow determined that there was some sort of illegality. And of course it's quite speculative and I'm not saying that that's what would happen. But in the hypothetical, to what would his opponents appeal? Uh, to why would they say that if all of the procedures are followed... Uh, ...and the combative tone is followed to the nth degree... ...and produces this remarkable, what would be a historical result... of of changing an election after the fact. Suppose that happened based on an entirely legal procedure. To what would opponents of Trump appeal, having said all along that what they're trying to do is defend the very institutions that would prevent... uh, ..that would, in this hypothetical, produce that result? They couldn't actually do anything. There's no reason for Trump not to exhaust every single procedural step. And especially when you think about it in terms of setting himself up to lead the opposition to Biden, and essentially um, do to them what they did to him.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think there, it, but
2: I, there is
1: there there is a reason not to do that, Andrew. And it's that I mean, you, you you pointed out that some grifters have come up with some spectacularly wild claims. I mean, one of those people making those spectacularly wild claims is the president. Um, so it's not as if he's been only concerned with the narrowest of claims of uh, election misconduct. It's that he has been the primary vehicle for um, the wildest of possible claims And uh, you know, with the Sydney Powell and the Linwood, and are are these these claims are these claims
2: more any more wild than the idea that the sitting president of the United States is a Russian? Sure. So no, no, no. but so so. I mean, I think that's a relevant question. I no, no.
1: but I I I agree with you. The idea that Donald Trump was actually a Russian asset from the 1980s was insane, but is no defence of a similarly insane claim made by Donald Trump. Now, the, the I, I agree that all people in politics are bad, but <laughs> all people in politics being bad still means individuals in politics are bad. And I think that we have to be mature enough to be able to, like, point that out. Like, it is, it is, it is madness. Now, why should we care? Okay, so why should we care? And why should we, as Australians, care about this? It's because... The Trump election of 2016 meant so much to the centre-right and realigned so much within the centre-right that when its sort of nominal leader acts in this way, it is discrediting to that change. I think, Andrew, you should be angry with him for letting your views down.
2: I wonder, discrediting in the eyes of who? I, and I think this gets to the fundamental question that Trump has raised. I think this is the legacy, you know, when we talk about Australia, I think this is the thing that we really take from it, is basically that uh, Trump, for all of his faults and, and, and all the things he's got wrong, um, the point about, the, the thing that Trump represents is basically being on the front foot and not, and not caring about, and not caring about what people who hate you think. Um, that's what he represents in the culture, is to, is, is to push back. Um, and so the idea that, um, in some way, Trump being what he's always been, which is um, a wild outlier, in a way, in his, in his willingness to, to take on his haters and stand there and cop their abuse. Um, this actually... And this is, why, this is why his posture right now in this last month... Is actually um, has been important to his supporters is because he's almost anti-fragile to attacks. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, uh, he's even anti-fragile to loss. I mean, I think that's what we might find is that because his position is... He, the support for him is based on his strength under these kinds of attacks um, and he's inviting more attacks on himself. Um, and I think... That symbolic power is the thing that um, people well, have well, never really yeah, well, fully grasped. Well, well,
0: well, to, to, to that point, um, uh, the Democrat fantasy uh, before the election was that if Trump lost, um, he would um, not only uh, use every legal means to avoid... Uh, having to hand over power, he would use extra legal means to avoid power, and you know the, the idea of you know tanks rolling down Constitution Avenue was sort of conjured up as a likely outcome of a Trump loss. Um, but I like that idea of an anti-fragile response because, of course, for for Trump, in many ways, uh, he didn't want to lose uh, um, for various reasons, in, including uh, his own uh, ego and the support base. Um, and the and the people on, you know, that he wants to represent politically, um, but he didn't have to win either. And so this this is a strategy no, where no no but Scott, no, no, Scott, he, no Scott. the point the point is the point is Chris <laughs> he will leave the White House. No, no, he, no, I he will that, leave. But what?
1: What is it? So, what is it that you want out of a political uh, leader?
0: Yeah, no, but, because, but, uh, but but all this stuff about you know gentle handovers and all the whining that we're hearing from the Democrats. Oh, I wanted to meet with the head of the head of yeah. this department and know uh, mm-hmm. there was a political advisor from the Republicans. there. Sure. I mean you know this sure. this is no different to what you know Theodore Roosevelt did you know you know a hundred years ago where some presidents refuse. To go gently into that good night not all of them just want to worry about their presidential library some
1: (laughs) so let 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 me make a let let me make a politics and to to jump off what andrew has said so you're right that um donald trump his virtue in the eyes of many and certainly in the eyes of his supporters is that he doesn't care he doesn't care what the what what the opposition think and he doesn't care what he, he 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 will be Trump no matter what happens. He will be the most Trump he can be. Now it turns out though that being the most Trump he can be has been a has meant that he's lost an election as a first term president. Because being the most Trump you can be brings out the opposition because you don't care what they think. Now, to my mind, that strikes me as a point against him if what we care about if what we care about is positive public policy change in the direction of liberty now if we care about D- Donald Trump as an individual then you yeah, know maybe losing is not actually a loss um, you know he will survive this I don't care whether he survives this I care about the public policy agenda I care about um, can can we get deregulation can we get good conservative or classical liberal, judges and i'm yet to hear an argument that having donald trump for one term was better than having a more um a less trumpy republican for two terms and i think that's the burden that has to be yeah, proven
2: but I, but I think it's you, you got to take a longer historical view about what that's it, all i do i about, just i just about do. what is being <laughs> what's being attempted here so you ask Well, what are the policy outcomes? We've got better policy outcomes in the last four years. Maybe. I mean, who knows? But these four years, these last four years, weren't the whole game. Um, The game is actually to have uh, an administration that actually represents these voters and doesn't thwart what they want. I mean, even something as simple, as simple as building a wall, um, literally something that humans have been doing for thousands of years, was impossible, even though Donald Trump was nominally the head of the executive. That is what is actually at stake in the long-run historical game that is being played here. Um, yeah, and that's why you know things like Trump won't leave, he'll put tanks on the streets, he doesn't need to do that because the point, the point is not about exercising political power in the short term. This is the thing. It's about access to political power and using it and being allowed to use it in the longer term. Um, it's not about these four years. The people but who is, are, that, is that, people that an argument
1: are, that the next Republican president will now will, have the ability to do more because it, it, of
2: Trump? What, it, what, what Trump has succeeded in highlighting is that for the people who support him, the system is now, as he always says, is rigged against them. How do we, how do we know that this is a change that he has managed to highlight? Well, Trump lost in an extremely unusual way in the historical pattern of presidential elections in the United States. He is the first uh, nominee since 1960 to win Ohio and Florida and not win, um, which are generally considered fairly representative states of middle America. He won 18 of 19 historic swing counties across the country usually considered bellwethers. Um, What happened in this election was highly unusual. It's the first election where uh, turnout in heavily Democratic cities was able to swamp the votes of uh, regional and outer suburban voters in key states. Um, And what that signals is a a shift right, in in how America is governed um, and whose views actually have access to executive power. and 2016, when he won, which was also a highly unusual election in many ways, um, not least of which was Trump himself, um, the result of that was actually a concerted effort to thwart the implementation of the policies that he'd run on. Uh, and so Trump's value as an historic figure is to make clear to people that their aspirations for their country, their ability to have their values represented In the executive of their country is now severely limited, and something has to be done about that. um, You know, in the sense of that's what needs to be campaigned on is is bringing that back and not accepting the inexorable slide towards uh, permanent democratic party rule. That's so. That's actually the longer run historical game. That's why Trump himself will probably stick around as leader of the opposition. It's why. Um, his positions will continue to circulate uh, on the centre-right is because there's a significant number of voters who feel as though um, it's getting harder and harder for them to actually win political power and use it. And now, and that's separate from what once... If you actually could exercise this power, what would you do? Um, you know, once the dog catches the car, what does he do? Yeah. But, it, you know, there is the, the question of... The, the, the car is ro- driving away faster and faster from the dog.
0: Can I have uh, a... I actually want to have a go at the first draft of history, and it does... It does a, that is a beautiful metaphor for the whole
1: administration. Well, it is. It is. I mean, this
0: is the, this is the thing about um, the dog that called the car, which was the Trump insurrection, and what an amazing insurrection. Uh, it was... Uh, I, don't, I still don't believe any other Republican candidate could have won, so there is no, there is no counterfactual in which you have a two-term Republican, against Hillary. Against Hillary, there is no counterfactual in which a two-term Republican uh, party comes. But one of the things I've been grappling with was I came of age uh, in the Reagan era, and uh, and so one of the things I've I've grappled with over the last four years is to see uh, the uh, the Trumpists um, essentially denigrating the legacy uh, of the Gipper because. Uh, you know, I, I lived it in real time. Um, I saw the outcome uh, being uh, the uh, the end of the Cold War with virtually uh, uh, complete victory, uh, a vindication of, of anti-communism, a vindication of fusionism. I saw mourning in America, uh, the economy turned around through tight money, tax cuts, uh, at least a notional commitment to smaller government. And then all of this was denigrated by... Um, uh, the, the Trump insurgents um, and I think one of the things that we'll see in history is not so much that uh, the insurrection changed the Republican Party from one of uh, one of Reagan um, or God forbid one of sort of the East Coast establishment Bush family uh, to uh, to one of uh, Trump. We'll probably see the continuities because, Reagan wasn't Reagan when he was Reagan. This idea of the historical Reagan that the Trump has painted was not what it was like at the time. He was seen as an incredibly divisive figure as well, Chris. So, you know, this, this Joe Biden line, you know, it's not the Republican Party of your fathers, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, Reagan, Reagan was a statesman, Say that, hey, okay, <laughs> yeah. bro, Reagan was a statesman and Trump's, Trump's a vandal. They thought, they ran for eight years on, on Reagan being the vandal. And the continuities are, um, they both put tax cuts through. They both tried to rein back the administrative state with limited effectiveness. Um, and uh, Reagan believed in global engagement and ally building. Trump was an isolationist. But the outcome is the same in both cases, in that you spend a, a heck of a lot of money on the military, and you you are ready for anything. So I actually think, in as as the styles of the individuals recede into history, and 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 they will eventually, there will actually be seen as more continuities between the two administrations than than is currently realised.
2: I think I think in the in the telling of it too, if I could just add to that I I think because I think that's a a really good point I think in the historical when we look back maybe not so much in the the policy sense but I think there will be a conscious effort to connect Trump to a continuous history Um, I think that's generally important because revolutions are bad right you don't want to create discontinuity Um, and so placing Trump in a fuller historical context, will be an important undertaking for whoever follows him anyway because they don't want to jettison um, the, the parts of, of, say, Reaganism that are still incredibly popular. I mean, Reagan was was hugely popular and successful. Why would you... You're not going to cut yourself... Like, yeah. rhetorically in the Trump era, it's been about positioning them against that. But I think in the longer run, they'll try and forge some continuity because ultimately, discontinuity revolution... Is bad. I mean, Americans lapse into revolutionary talk because of how they talk about the founding of their country. You know, so every time you well, know Gingrich, Gingrich gets control of Congress, it's a Republican revolution. Let's well, like, talk about this. This is
0: like your man uh, Michael Anton with the Flight 93 election. Like he wrote that great essay on why 2016 was the Flight 93 election, and we have to storm the cabin. But every day is Flight 93 for Michael Anton, it's like, come on, mate, you can't. You can't keep
1: that... Well, I think, I well, think everything, everything has to be the apocalypse. That otherwise.
0: is Roman and
2: Roman. No, but I think that does touch on, on, on what I was saying, is that, that, that Trump, Trump lost in a, in a highly, highly unusual way. This, this is, can't really be stressed enough, that, um, that in any other era of American history, the coalition of voters that Trump put together would have been enough to win. But they weren't in this election and that tells you something about uh, the country um, and I think that's that's going to be the hard part because you know Reagan Democrats you know the, the put Reagan over the top and made him this huge historic success Trump won a lot of those voters as well but, um, but, but they just they're just not as important electorally as they used to be uh, so, and that so hurts.
1: I, I don't know I don't know that we can assess how unusual that spread of coalition and states is until we sort of see a few more elections after the fact. But but even so, even like, like granting that argument, doesn't that suggest that Trump as a unique figure brought out the vote both on his side and against him, but more people didn't like that style than didn't? So yes, Scott, you're right. Reagan was described by the left as divisive in lots of ways, but he also managed to hold the country, hold the presidency again, and then gave it to his vice president afterwards. You can't, we can't have, we we, we can't until 2020 assess the success of Trump by, by the fact that he was popular enough to win in 2016 and then, Suggest that well, 2020 was just weird, you know. Oh, too unusual. Um, he was. It, it, these ideas are still incredibly popular, and he's still incredible. No,
2: because if we person. see the same pattern in subsequent elections, then this election will be considered a watershed. Now, one way that it was unusual is the incredibly high rate of mail-in voting because of the the pandemic, um, and you could play counterfactual games with that all day long. But, and that, that but having created the systems for mail-in voting, that may well continue. Into future election cycles. More and more people may vote that way. Um, early voting, I mean, one of the ways that Trump, one of the reasons that Trump lost is that he put together this incredible barnstorming campaign in the last month of the campaign, um, uh, 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 you know, to rank on par or exceed barnstorming runs from history. But by that point, a lot of people had already voted. I mean, by the time Trump started his barnstorming after himself having coronavirus, a lot of people had already voted and they'd voted, I think. Um, I think the pan- his response to the pandemic hurt him. Um, and I think getting the virus, I think, was an embarrassment, you know. And, and I think that people were voting at that time when that happened. Um, so that's a little bit unusual. But what I mean by saying that it's unusual is is that even if it becomes a, a norm, it will always be discontinuous with how American elections have been decided in the past. And so it marks a kind of watershed. And, you know, if we're talking about the future of the Republican Party or even more broadly, you know, what lessons we can take here in Australia from it, I think that watershed is going to be a really important marker because um, how do you how do you win? How do you put together yeah, well, a, 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 well,
0: but then on the other hand, Andrew, um, they, they held that. They, um, uh, they held on to the Senate and they did very well in the house you see too. the issue for me like so no I, no it's I'm
1: unusual up. sorry on that it's because he was uniquely unpopular turns yeah. out republicans
2: aren't unpopular but he, no but he wasn't unpopular with republicans yeah. so why would you come and vote and this is this is this is because this is really the, really because interesting. the because the, the marginal voters, the
1: ones who actually make your decision, they're like, yeah, look, sometimes I vote Republican and there's no reason there's, not to there, do that this uh, got But a, I don't there, like Trump.
2: No, but there's, there's, there's more... To, well, I mean, there, there is the case that some people who are nominally Republican would, would tell pollsters, I support Trump. So Trump was polling about 95% approval with Republicans. So you're not leaving a huge um, group of people there who are willing to come along, vote Republican in other... You know, and lower down on the ticket, and not vote for Trump. I mean, I think that's somewhat unusual. I mean, again, yes, one the most unusual thing in these elections is Trump himself. There's no, there's no yep. question about that. Like he is the the real thing that makes these mm. unique. Um, but that said, there are, there are other there are other things that Trump did that were were historically unusual. His um, high support among Latinos, particularly. Um, in Florida, um, the Cuban population yeah, there. Yeah, you know, there are there are different uh, and, ways and, and that he was unusual and, as well. And, that,
0: and that's a future. Um, uh, like I, I was reading a New Yorker piece that a friend sent me. Um, it was the week of the election. It was talking about different scenarios for the for the Republicans. And and you know, one scenario was like restoration, that there'd be this sort of snapback uh, to what the Republican Party was before Trump came along. And that's like uh, then your candidate would be Nikki Haley. Um, uh, Or the other one is to complete this process of reversal where the Republican Party becomes the party of the common man and not just um, uh, whites either, but um, completes um, a sort of a a class and and uh, culture-based reversal which uh, is actually going to keep on doing even better and better um, uh, with uh, Latino and other uh, minority voters Uh, Even, you know, Trump, I think, was uh, polling 30-plus percent amongst uh, African-American men under 50. Um, So there's opportunities there. And that candidate is Marco Rubio. He wants to complete the process of reversal. I've got to tell you, though, what what worries me... And I think that is what is prospective for Trump and the centre-right around the world is that reversal. What worries me, though, is if Trump is the leader of the opposition... The process will not be completed. It just reminds me too much of uh, Joe Elke Peterson in Queensland, Jeff Kennett in Victoria, other strong man leaders. Um, when they're out of office but still in power, they have a corrosive effect on those who come after. Um, it just they're always anyone who comes after looks small in their shadow um, while they're still on the scene, and if if um, I can see why Donald Trump's not riding off into the sunset. What worries me is that he won't be securing his legacy. He'll be destroying it. Just like Teddy Roosevelt um, screwed the Republican mm-hmm. Party. And That's that, that's what could happen.
1: And, and that's a way to think about what the implications are for the future here, um, particularly in Australia. Um, so I, I think there are two possible interpretations of what's gone on. One is um, that there's a general movement, a general realignment around policy choices and around who those policy, policy choices are sold to. So again, that's the potentially multi-ethnic, but certainly a more working class conservatism. Um, now, working class conservatism is not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. And again, Reagan had a lot of that, um, uh, but Trump has made it.
2: Well, it was, or, the, it was or the original premise of, of Tory democracy as well.
1: Yeah, so so, but it seems to it, it's it's a big part of the Trump story. The other interpretation, though, is that there's something just special about Donald Trump that the conservative movement just really, really liked. Now, um, that's because he's an unusual character. That's because he doesn't care what the left thinks. That's because it looks. And he's like entertaining.
0: He's, he's entertaining. Yeah, he's because funny. He's funny. The other you want to listen to him? Yeah, because he's funny. That's he's the genuinely. Thing that never wouldn't
1: got. it be funny to see if he was president? Was a big part, I think, of twenty sixteen.
0: No, no, I mean he's actually he's no. Actually I funny. mean he's funny. He you, you know you're listening to him. His speeches are hilarious. But, <laughs>
1: but but so but if that's the case, and you know it doesn't have to be in either or. But if it, if that's the dominant part, then there there are no lessons, right? There, like Australian, the Australian conservative movement can't just find a funny New York developer and pop him up and get him mm. to talk about immigrants or something like we can't we can't do that we and we we, we'd be stupid to try and it's the same again for the republican party it's either trump or no one or if it's this more general change then you know that that is replicable
2: no i think i think trump definitely there there are there are a a fair number of people who are probably trump only voters um they're they're trump voters they're not republican voters they're not really interested in a realignment they like the idea of Trump, and that's why the other option, you know, looking forward, um, um, would be <laughs> <It's a laughs> so that's, yeah, completely uh, accidental and stupid. But um, yeah, looking look to looking to the future, um, the other option would be another outsider candidate who was able to tap into that that same feeling. Now, um, you're not going to find another one who's was a you know a TV star. Basically. You, you know, you're, and, like, you're not, not going to drop Tucker Carlson. Yeah, You're going to drop Tucker Carlson. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drop, like, but it could be someone who is out, an outsider but somewhat more serious. Um, from time to time you see um, generals get, in, get interested in, in politics, things like that. So it could be someone from outside um, the mainstream political um, bureaucracy that's able to tap into the same vein, um, assuming... And, and, and that's, where I think, that's where I think perhaps I would differ from you, Kristen, that I think that there is a vein to tap into. I think Trump is, was uniquely placed to tap into it, but the vein exists separate from Trump, um, at least to some extent. Um, you know, I think, you know, when we look at... at
0: uh and some of it's outside of politics. I'm not... Uh, sorry, just yeah. to support your point, I don't want to take you away from it. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. Bob Hawke, coming into the Labor Party, he'd built his profile outside of the party, outside of the parliament. Malcolm Turnbull, in a way, had built his profile outside of the parliament. Um, uh, ruined the Liberal Party, but that's a different story. But, but yes, <laughs> there's, there's always opportunities for someone to come in from outside. Yeah,
2: and that would actually be... I mean, if that, if that became a trend, um, that would be actually be a very positive thing. Um, the professionalisation of the political class has been a real been a real driver of this gap opening up between the political class and the people they ostensibly represent. So, to the extent that Trump might rep- represent in, in some way um, a willingness to look beyond that group of people and say, "Well, actually, you know, we can install as our representative really anyone um, anyone who agrees with us," um, and or even or and that's even what the tea part-
0: that's what the Tea Party was about too. You know, pre-Trump. The Tea Party was an insurrection movement within the Republican Party, was to look at their representatives in Congress and say, I'm, no. I'm sick of these guys. And that's they're, why, that, they're hopeless. So yeah. let's, let's just get rid of them and put someone else in. And
2: that's why, like, you know, talk about political realignment um, and things like that, what it actually boils down to is representative democracy, it, taking that seriously, that the people who are in positions of power through the democratic process, are supposed to represent the voters. They're not supposed to um, represent their own interests, at least not all of the time. Um, And they're not supposed to um, spend their days feathering their nests. I mean, the United States, this is one of the incredible things. And this is where Australia is different, and and one of the reasons why we haven't seen the same sort of thing. The United States is willing, seemingly willing, to tolerate an incredible level of corruption. we would not. We would not tolerate a senator magically having a hundred million dollar fortune. We just wouldn't do it. Um, uh, you, I mean, Barry O'Farrell resigned over a bottle of wine that he forgot to keep the receipt. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in in the United States, they just have these senators with like rows of houses. You know, it's like oh, I own that town. You know, what? <laughs> so, you know, in the United States, and, and this, is, this is, you know... You have my, to own a proportion of the
1: state. Yeah, to put my, to put
2: my monarchist <laughs> yeah. hat on, you know. It's the ultimate this is, this in this representative is, this is, this democracy. In Republican, republic, the United States, what Trump has proved is the United States is just another corrupt American republic. I mean, the only, um, the outlier on that continent <laughs> is Canada. Um, everything below the 49th parallel is more or less the same <laughs> system of government.
0: Just some of them speak Spanish or, or Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, and some it's of them, all the, some it's all them the speak same, English. It's all
2: the same um, uh, regicidal mania. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so is is is? <laughs> I don't. I, I actually um, think that we're we're making some progress. Um, uh, but it, does that mean that that's the? Is the lesson for Australia that Trump? is and it, i accept your point that you know there is there is a vein to tap into but um is the lesson for australia that um it's not about the policy so much it's not about that that suite of um uh, ideological stances it's the fact that it's it's an outsider who's willing to throw away or not throw away to to disrupt the existing moribund political system and if so does that mean it doesn't matter on what side of politics they come from?
2: Well, I think the the so it's a, it's a it's a good question, but I think sort of the left wing populist idea um, is just not that divorced from what you know what what so Bernie Sanders, for example, what he actually wants, or what the Greens in Australia actually want, isn't that far removed from what the bureaucracy is doing anyway. So it's not <laughs> really um, an outsider kind of movement in the way that um, you know, I, I mean, the way I would put it is this, and it, it, is that what? So we, you know, if we broaden this to the the future of of, of the centre right and 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 what uh, you know uh, that kind of politics will become, um, I think the the trend is for the the breakdown is becoming um, the centre right is or has the opportunity to become the side of politics that defends particularity in all of its forms. The idea that our country is a particular place um, that is capable of making up its own mind. Um, these inst- and then further down, these institutions have particular functions. They don't need to be rationalised. Um, versus what is the, the, the great project of, uh, of, of essentially enlightenment political philosophy... Of turning every person and every institution into exactly the same thing. The, the, so the Kantian project. So so this the the, the breakdown is is between you know we you know, the left talks about equality and things like that, but the breakdown is really particularity versus generality, um, and I think that the 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 trend is towards particularity and towards the establishment uh, in the state of a particular set of values. Um, that are rooted in history and shared by the people. That's what populism actually means. And this is in a broad abstract sense, in a, in a sense that's more abstract than conservatives would normally talk about. this is actually the meaning of Toryism, which is the union which is the union of political and spiritual power, um, symbolized historically uh, in the king. And that's but that's that that fusion. Just, just bear with me. union.
0: We are on a clock here. Yeah, but it's that union. No, it's, that, u- it's
2: that union of, of of political and 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 normative power that particularity actually picks out. We,
0: um, we are going to have to leave it, there, yeah. Andrew, because because uh, I have one final thing to say, and then Chris has one final thing to say before we throw to books and culture. Um, my observation, my thought that I want to leave you with, and that was that was awesome. But we are on a clock um, uh, because. The, um, great special guest coming in. My worry about this kind of politics, though, is that you will see in the Morrison government that they will justify anything on the grounds of, oh, this is our new uh, Tory conservatism, this is, this is um, uh, conservatism of the common people, we're not worried... We don't want to be ideological. Morrison's always saying, I'm not worried about ideology. What he means is... That that just becomes a cover for, I'll do whatever's pragmatic to get me through the day. I'll just, I'll fiddle with any legislation. I'll let my ministers do whatever they want, whatever they can get through the Senate. It will be the absolute exhaustion of ideas on the centre-right and, and and what this will not be a philosophically conservative government. It will not be a Tory government. It will not be one-nation conservatism, to use the British phrase. It will just be a government of we'll just do whatever it takes to get us to the next election and then we'll cobble together a great marketing campaign to retroactively justify it and to make up some, some more crap we can promise the voters who will hopefully give us another three years. That is always the worry on the centre-right. And thank God for... Uh, ideologues like Ronald Reagan, who actually um, uh, read far more books than he was ever given credit for and actually had a philosophy. Right. That's what yeah. is always at issue with the Senate, right? And that's, that's why the, we need the Institute the, of Public Affairs, Chris.
1: <laughs> and that's... The, I, I'm sorry to, to, to spoil the ad. And that's the value of ideology. It's not that you're just generically pushing against the public service because, you know, they're the public service and they are annoying elites. It's because you have a vision of the world that you want. And I worry that this populist movement um, uh, is just the opposition, not the creation of the better, freer world that that I think I, I desire.
0: There you go. Three awesome closing comments from Andrew, me and you, Chris. But it is that part of the program where we do have to segue into our books and culture segment and... Um, um Chris, please start. Thanks, Scott. So um,
1: I have been watching... Well, so I have continued to read the Gotham book, which, as I said, is unholy lengthy, the history of New York, which I, I think last time you were on the show, Andrew, <laughs> we were able to yeah. talk about you it. It is a ch- fantastic book. You should have done it chapter
0: just... by chapter. Your your culture pick, each of which was that, a chapter of Gotham. That would have been
1: much more valuable, wouldn't it? But, in fact, today I would like to talk to you about... Um, uh, a show called the world according to jeff goldblum so this is an incredibly lightweight documentary series on disney plus that i'm sure anybody's got disney plus and if you've got disney plus you definitely have children um, if you've got disney plus you've probably skipped over before um uh we sat down and watched it as a family um because the thing about having kids, and my kids are now nine and six, is you're constantly looking for things that you can watch as a family. And because they're of that age that we can't really watch M-rated things, so we can't we can't watch the best stuff. So you're constantly hunting for something you can watch
0: This, is, this is why Disney is a massive corporation, which makes a lot of money. <laughs> it is. It is. This it is, it is. Why. It's
1: precisely marketed to basically me um uh it's got to be adequate for the for the parents and enjoyable for the children anyway so this documentary series is jeff goldblum just investigating things so for example this is the investigates sneakers ice cream tattoos denim barbecue gaming just really nouns jeff goldblum investigates nouns now jeff goldblum of course is a is a fantastic actor and um and most iconically from uh the jurassic park series the thing that really struck me though watching this is um I'm sure, I mean, Scott, you've definitely seen Be and John Malkovich, and and Andrew, you would have seen it as well. What I love about being John Malkovich is that it's John Malkovich doing a self-parody of himself, as people imagine John Malkovich to be, very stern and serious and obsessed with his art. And he's he's taking the piss out of himself. I can't help but watch this and think, this is Jeff Goldblum playing the character called Jeff Goldblum pretending to do a documentary. Um, Some people might find it a bit... A bit much and it can be a bit much, but it is nonetheless something perfectly adequate you can watch with your preteen children.
2: He's always like that though, isn't he?
0: What's what's the what's the Hulk movie where or the Thor movie? Is it Thor three where um, oh, yeah. the
1: Thor Ragnarok, where where he plays the, but there is prancing about now, this Yeah, is, but that's this a caricature
0: sort of, a, of Jeff Gold, Goldblum as well. So,
1: <laughs> look, eventually we all become characters of ourselves, and um, I guess I'm there too. Some so some
0: likes. some more than others, Chris. Some more than others. Some more than others.
1: <laughs> but it just it just feels like a character, and you know maybe the character merges into himself over time. Good. So if yeah. you, it's it, good fun. If
0: you it's got good. kids, yep, yep, go for yeah. it. After you've watched. All twenty three movies, every Marvel movie else is on, on Disney, Disney Plus. Plus. That's
1: that's 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 also there. Yep. That's is Jurassic
2: we're... Park the one that people think of with Jeff Goldblum, or is it Independence Day?
0: I mean, as you were yeah. saying,
2: most iconically, or his most iconic role, I immediately drifted to him somehow no. bringing down an alien spaceship with a, a no. virus. What, what about the fly? What that
1: is your worst opinion, and uh, that is your worst opinion. It is unambiguously. The Jurassic Park (laughs) Uh, It was the fly that that launched him
0: as an actor. (sighs) Goodness. Um, (laughs) Well, I have a book, so you don't have a book, do you? No, I have a movie. (laughs) Right. So maybe I should go next, uh, Chris, because I actually have a book. Uh, Smart it up a bit for
1: us, would you, Scott?
0: Yeah, very good. So uh, not a new book, uh, but um, haunting the the bargain uh, pile of quality bookshops. I came across Jonathan Swift, his life and his world um, uh, by uh, Professor Leo Damrosch from Harvard University. It's actually like a 2012, 2013 uh, publication, but um, awesome, awesome. And I'm always going to grab it from the bargain table, not just because it's only 20 bucks uh, instead of like the 60 bucks you pay for a new work of that magnitude. Um, it hits all the buttons for me. Um, it's part of, uh, refers to the long 18th century, uh, which is like my favourite period. It's everything from the Close, effective close of the English Civil War with the Glorious Revolution in 1688 up to the end of the Napoleonic era. That's when the world be, or Britain at least became modern. It was um, uh, unashamedly parliamentary. The Civil War was was closed. Um, so fascinating period in history. I'm into it through uh, Dr Johnson and Edmund Burke and all sorts of things. Didn't know much about Swift though. Knew he the author of Gulliver's Travels which is such an amazing, excellent satire disguised as a children's book. I've never been able to get into it because I didn't know what it was satirising. So when I so when I see a book, I am triggered by a title like he, his life and his world. You know, it's going to explain yeah. it all to me. This
1: is really smashing some political actors I have no idea about. <laughs>
0: That's right. Yeah, the um, uh, bloody uh, Duke of Marlborough, the arch enemy yeah, really of Jonathan Swift. It. Okay, yeah, okay, take that Duke. <laughs> um, anyway, it was very very good. I did learn a lot more about him. Um, uh, he was uh, the other reason I didn't know as much about him is, I'm unashamedly a follower of the uh, Whig view of history, the the parliamentarians who um, uh, asserted the supremacy of parliament against the King. Um, uh, Swift was much more, he'd been in that camp, but he much more allied himself to the Tories, uh, the country party, the party of squires of the established church. He was in the established church. He was in the Church of Ireland. All he wanted was a a bishopric. Not much. I just want a nice pay packet in a cushy English bishopric. Um, couldn't get one. Had to settle for uh, being dean of St Patrick's in Ireland. Later became, even though he was from the uh, the, Anglo, the established church, the Anglo uh, section of the population, which was lucky to be 10% of the then Irish public, the ruling class. But he became what a champion of Ireland, and is remembered. Um, by Irish of all denominations, as someone who is very, very good at sticking it up the English. And this was why his career as a a church figure went nowhere while his writing career took off, because he was very, very good at sticking it up people and published all of these pamphlets, had to do most of them anonymously because he would have been either um, done for uh, defamation libel or treason at various times. So he ruined his actual career uh, but is remembered as a, as a writer and um, uh, did all of that, as I say. Uh, he'd had a very good time in England. He was nearly on the cusp under Queen Anne, the last of the Tory monarchs. Um, but when she died, everything turned you know to dust and he had to escape back to Ireland. But out of that you get a masterwork like Gulliver's Travels, uh, the famous story of... Um, uh, in the land of Lilliput amongst the little people who were six inches high and tied him down and had their stupid obsessions arguing, had a civil war over whether or not um, you should eat it, start an egg with the big end or the little end and all this kind of thing that's entered uh, folklore, never been out of print. Um, so that's my uh, that's my recommendation, Chris, an actual book, Jonathan Swift. Actu-
1: an actual book, very impressive.
0: If you go into, go into <laughs> readings or... Uh, Probably Glee books or anywhere like that, you'll find a just c- just copy a bookshop. Loaded. Really, really, just a bookshop. Well, yeah, but like it's seven or eight years old, so <laughs> so they've got to be able to carry some inventory. It's got to be a good bookshop. <laughs> not 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 going to riff there anywhere. Weak view of history, Andrew. Um,
2: yeah, I was wondering if that was like baiting me or not. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, I
0: was just throwing it over the fence. I was going to say. <laughs> All right, yeah, go go, <laughs> Andrew.
2: Weak view of history. W- well, I mean, progress is a lie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) what was that about becoming a caricature of yourself Chris
0: (laughs) (laughs) and playing the role of Peter Hitchens at the IPA is none other than Andrew Bushnell thank you we'll be back back with more next week now anyway
2: Uh, one one man who did actually achieve something akin to progress at the very least uh, was the the American pilot Chuck Yeager who passed away yesterday uh, at the age of 97 Uh, most famous for being the man who broke the sound barrier, was officially credited with doing it. It's like, like, as with any such moment, there's a dispute about whether anyone had done it before, but he's credited with it. Uh, so my culture pick in honour of Chuck Yeager is the uh, 1983 classic film, The Right Stuff, uh, by Philip Kaufman, um, based on the book by Tom Wolfe. Um, now, this year, actually, I think it was a Disney, might have been Disney as well, Chris... Um, made a remake of this, a series, which I haven't seen. Mm. Because there's really no reason to remake a film as good as this one. Mm. And there's really no reason to make a series that's a remake of a film that's as long as this one. <laughs> yeah, um, because,
1: which, it goes forever. It's fantastic. But it it's, goes it's forever.
2: it's an amazing film. It goes for three hours. It was a box office disaster because, you know, as cool as it test pilot as yep. cool as test pilots <laughs> are, like it's kind of a niche interest for three hours. But um I, I mean highly recommended. But like Chuck Yeager, you know, you look at his life story, I've got an obituary of him uh, in front of me. Um, and, you know, he, was, he, he served as a, as a pilot in, in World War II, notoriously, famously shot... He successfully shot down uh, five enemy planes in a single day. Um, then he became, after the war, he became the lead test pilot in the program that would eventually become the Mercury uh, program um, which led to the the space program, um, and so you know, a, a important role not just in aviation history, but then um, in the way that the Americans were able to build on that, win the space race. Um, I've spoken on this podcast at least once before, probably several times before, about just what an achievement that yeah. was. And this guy was foundational to it. Um, after being a test pilot in that program for a long time. He served again in Vietnam, uh, flying bombers. Um, he retired in the 70s as a, as a brigadier general. Uh, and he was, uh, I think he was given the US Medal of Freedom uh, by George Bush, uh, George Bush Jr., um, and, and promoted again. So he, when he died, he was a major general in the Air Force. Just an incredible life. And this film, um, The Right Stuff, starts with Chuck Yeager, because he's right at the he's right mm. at the start of it, played by um, Sam Shepard, um, and it traces the whole program. And, and so Chuck Yeager's is kind of the foundation of this, and the film kind of comes back to him at the end. Um, I think 16 years after the film starts, or something like that, quite a long time anyway, of him flying yet another prototype plane to try and escape the atmosphere and crashing, um, and of course he walks away because
0: he had yeah. the from right from start. the burning wreckage.
2: Yeah, and it's just. Um, just a, a very... A like, this is like the, the archetypal, like, American man of action, cool figure that their popular culture has promoted around the world. Um, and also... But, but he
0: was a real guy.
2: And he was a real guy. And it's like... And this is the kind of... When people say things aren't as good as they used to be, when people say progress is a myth, what they really mean is... You you, men, when you
1: say progress... When, well,
2: what, myth, what they really mean is <laughs> that... What they really mean is that men like this just don't appear as frequently or they don't seem to. And so, you know, ex, human excellence... Um, if we were thinking about progress theoretically as, you know, uh, an ever increasing uh, reservoir of human excellence, you, you just couldn't—you couldn't realistically make that case because figures like this are so few and far between. It actually lends itself to a more sort of cyclical view of history, perhaps, as these as people like Chuck Yeager appear and disappear.
0: Yeah. Or perhaps what's but different?
2: Maybe is- it's interesting.
1: Maybe it's interesting to think about it in relation to. So I mean. Uh, chuck Yeager obviously is that hero but just thinking about the right stuff versus a more recent um version of that story or close to version of that story which is the first man the um story about neil armstrong and apollo 11 um and what i remember very strongly from the right stuff is that there are some very sad scenes right and in fact the scene that strikes me the most is one of the the funeral scenes when they're singing um uh, nearer thy God to me i think it is um Uh, After someone's crashed in one of these things, but compare that to First Man, which is a thoroughly downbeat story of an incredible success, again, for both science and progress and heroism and exploration and all that sort of thing. So in the 2010s and 2020s, we have to tell that story and we have to tell it through the lens of personal tragedy, whereas even as recently as 1983... We can tell that story as a story of great heroism, where there is sadness, but it is the heroism that comes first.
2: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think there's a, a, a you can sort of track um, American storytelling in a way that the, the the emphasis in First Mean is on. I think I mentioned this on this podcast is that it's on the grueling endurance nature of this kind of work. That it's not all just like. Risk-taking is not all fun. There's a lot of uh, mm. preparation. It's not and all just work.
1: stepping down off the ladder.
2: I think that's right because it really comes through in the right stuff um, that it's a celebration of this kind of character and yeah. what this kind of person is able Do to achieve. Do they have the right
0: stuff? Yeah. Like um, imagine actually setting a bar that people have to reach. Do they have the right stuff? If they don't have the right stuff, they're out of the program.
2: Yeah, And so just a tremendous story of, of human excellence and... Incredibly, uh, the foundation of it is a real man. Yeah,
0: Valé Chuck yoga What a what a nice note to finish on, and uh, a yeah. great movie. Um, and I remember, yeah, it it, it it what you couldn't see it at the box office; it was too long. And then it just spread by word of mouth and DVDs and.
2: Yeah. And that's now one of the you know it's preserved by the Library of Congress and yeah. things. It's considered a classic.
0: Yeah, pretty awesome. Great great choice, Andrew. Um, thank you for that one. Uh, Thank you for yours, uh, Chris. And, of course, as we mentioned before, uh, we'll be back next week for what will be the final episode of 2020 uh, and, indeed, uh, our final episode um, until further notice uh, due to all the uh, the great plans that we have for 2021. Uh, Final reminder today that this is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you'd like to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. I'd like to say a big thank you to my fellow panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. A uh, big shout-out to uh, the lads in the control room, particularly Saul today, for all of your work. And uh, we'll be back with more next week.